Welcome to episode 85 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Okay, welcome back to another episode. This is um, my tip this week just happened to fit really well with the conversation we will have later with our uh, interview. But and it wasn't I was going to talk about this last week and then switched and talked about, you know, mental health concerns and which was interesting because we actually recorded that before there was the whole TikTok trend where there was um, people on TikTok calling for gun threats and for missing school. And luckily, everyone that I know and love made it through that (laughs) without any effect. And it seemed like there was more talk about it than actual outcomes of anything. So we're glad for that and glad that we are continuing the conversation on how to deal with those mental health and safety issues with our students. But so this is the one I was going to talk about last week and got pushed back and now it fits. So um, again, it's from the whimsical world and she talked or whimsical word and uh, whimsical SLP is her um, Instagram. And she talked about us having an, an ethical obligation to talk about when families or students or patients are not right for telepractice. And I think that, you know, I am always very excited to offer telepractice to people. And I truly have a belief that it can work for most and that you should try it. But there's definitely some considerations and times when it doesn't work. And so she went through some things to consider that she actually pulled from ASHA's guidelines. um, And she kind of boiled those down. But it's to think about the physical limitations. Are they able to sit? at a computer or are they able to have a caregiver there who can sit at the computer? Um, Do they have, you know, some, do they have vision concerns? Do they have endurance concerns? Things like that, that would keep them from sitting at a computer or having someone there who could do that for them. And then uh, it also talked about considering cognitive limitations. Um, you know, are they able to attend for an appropriate length of time? And I think also I will put in there because both me and Todd come from a parent coaching background. Some of these can be mitigated by doing more of a parent coaching over telepractice thing. But if that's not available, then these are things to think about. Um, so she also talks about behavioral limitations. Uh, are they motivated? Are Do they have like required excessive motivation to kind of get them to participate. I had one student that would try to shut the laptop and throw it across the room every time. So we, we started out with just, we do 10 minute sessions because the family knew that they lived somewhere rural and that it would be beneficial for him at some point to be able to participate. So we're like, okay, we will work him up to it. And we did 10 minute sessions with a behavior coach next to him to help with those things. Um, And then they also talked about communication limitations. And, you know, it could be 
and that could be a second language limitation too. If you're trying to guide someone through how to get on the computer and, you know, a parent, English is their second language. Do you have to think about that and if it's going to work? And then um, also just the support limitations. Is there someone who's available to be there in the room with the child? Um, Do they have, you know, the support of how to get on the computer and getting there on time and all of that? And there's times where we do as professionals just have to say, you know what, this doesn't look like it's working for you guys right now. And these are the reasons why this is what I've seen. And we need to try something else. And it's hard, especially when there you might be somewhere where you're working at a school and there's not a lot of other options for professionals. But we still have an obligation to say this is not working in the best way and we have to find something else. Uh, and, and I, of course, agree wholeheartedly. I think I, I agree with you that I think for most of the patients that we will see as speech language pathologists and maybe occupational therapy and physical therapy as well, we probably could meet uh, meet their needs through telehealth. But that being said, there are some patients where it's just not a good fit. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we can't meet all of their needs mm-hmm. uh, and they will need in-person uh, therapy or in-person sessions. Right. And so I, I think um, having a, a process in place to evaluate how well you know, that that patient is going to react to telehealth and and going through some of the uh, guidelines that you just talked about that come from ASHA and, and making sure that they are a good fit. And, and sometimes when, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, clinicians think it's an all or nothing kind of thing. Right. And, and during some, the, at some points during the pandemic, it was, it was, we do teletherapy right. or we get nothing. <laughs> so, right. so we're glad that we're coming out of that. So we have more choices. Exactly. And, and I, and with, you know, COVID and those restrictions in the beginning, yeah, I agree. Everyone had to do it. And there wasn't that choice, but now that we are sort of getting back to normal with those kinds of things, we do have a choice and we can give choices to patients. And so even if they start off in person, we can sort of ease them into telepractice if that's where we want to end up. Uh, and other patients may be able to jump in from the beginning, depending on what they need and how we can serve them. So I think clinicians just need to uh, really think through what works best. And, and often it's more of a hybrid model mm-hmm. where it's a combination of both. And, and I think that's where, as a profession, we're going to end up uh, where a lot of patients are going to be more of a hybrid model and then others are going to be more straight telehealth. That's that's sort of where we'll be. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So, uh, on the podcast today, and this is all I'm, I'm glad you you brought these uh, this topic up for discussion because on the podcast uh, we're going to have uh, Dr. Marlene Mayhew from telehealth.org. And as if you haven't had a chance to visit uh, the website, please do. But you know she offers telehealth training, uh, looking at, you know, telehealth and and telepractice for allied health and psychology and counseling. And she's just uh, has been doing this for such a long time, but also has developed really great materials and great trainings to 
to really uh, move us forward. So I'm looking forward to that discussion. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. Dr. Marlene Mayhew, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Can you share more about your background and experience in telehealth? Yes, I'd be happy to. And thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. I started in telehealth back in 1994 when the internet was just starting and I wanted to find out how to do things online legally and ethically. Even back then I could tell there were a lot of questions that were unanswered by simply reading the ethics codes uh, from various associations. So I am a psychologist by training and so I went to the American Psychological Association and asked them questions and they sort of scratched their heads and said, gee, we don't, we don't have any answers for that. Um, you want to come in and chair a subcommittee to do that? And I said, all right, sure. So I did. And that's what started me working with a variety of associations for years now. And um, I sat on a, the standard and guideline writing committees, um, work groups for um, you know, in different capacities in different associations, both American Psychological Association, American Telemedicine Association, American Counseling Association, and then some of the state associations as well. So, uh, you know, I got a pretty good sense of what and how all this is kind of put together. I also had a three-year appointment to the COPS Committee of the American Psychological Association, which was a committee on professional practice standards and that as a telehealth lead. And so that's where I really learned the difference between standards and guidelines. Standards being required by an association and guidelines being aspirational. But the truth is, if you don't follow guidelines and you end up in court, you get grilled as to why you didn't. So you better know your guidelines if an association puts them out, regardless of whether or not you are um, a member of that association. It is held as a standard for your profession. So, um, a behavior like a scope of practice kind of thing, you know, for, for your profession. So, so I learned those differences. And then I was invited, to, I gave a talk in 1997, and I still to this day don't have any idea what I said that launched this whole thing, but I got seven book offers after that. People were chasing me for a return. Wow, what did I say? And I had never thought about writing a book. And so I accepted a contract, which was Earl Baum at the time. They got bought out by Wiley. So now that particular book was published in, I think it was the year 2000, the early book, uh, my, my first of five books. And um, then... I started this, this, you know, writing, doing research, looking at, well, who's doing what online and that kind of thing, because I kind of like writing and researching now, although I hadn't thought of it before. So that's kind of what launched us. Um, in 2000, 
nine, the one of the early groups that published us wanted us to do a second version. And we looked at our royalty checks and we thought, are you kidding? I, I mean, I think I spent $20,000 with an admin to write one of my first books. And I had made an average of $150 a year all together for the royalties. I said, forget it. We'll put it online. And uh, this is my world, after all, is what I talk about. And we'll start applying for CEs and CMEs. And so that's what we started doing. And now we took the core of, luckily, I'm a good negotiator, and I got the copyright to those early books. So I own those words. And so we edited those, and we boiled it all down to 600 pages. Now we're about 800 pages of all our training online, plus a bunch of videos. So... You know, with that, we're approved by the uh, American Medical Association, Osteopathic Society, through an intermediary. Um, and then we have American Psychological Association, uh, um, NADAC, the, the addiction professionals. We have their approval. We have social work, the clinical social work board, and um, NBCC for counselors. So we've gotten a lot of those. And through all of it, we've had... A remarkable number of speech and language therapists come through as well as occupational therapists because the core of what we teach is legal and ethical telehealth. And, and it, we, you know, we might veer off into things like marketing. How do you market your practice online? You know, we have a five hour program on that, but really it's the core of well, how do you market your practice legally and ethically online? You see, because if you follow some of the big marketing folks out there, they, they tell you to, to do all kinds of things that we as licensed professionals are not, it would not be appropriate for us to do. Okay. So that's kind of a little bit of a, our background, how we got here. So now we, we are in 109 countries. I'm, I'm astounded as to how uh, we don't certainly market to 109 com- countries, but they come to okay. us. I think it's because we've been around a long time and we were the first. And uh, we have very good customer support. And uh, I personally am... Uh, bicultural, bilingual, bicultural. My first language was French. We're French-Canadian families, so my entire family on both sides was, uh, was French-Canadian. You know, so I grew up in two worlds, so I can relate pretty easily to people in other countries. That's that's great. And, you know, what's what's been fascinating for me, I think, in terms of telehealth is, especially in the area of, of psychology and counseling and mental and behavioral health, just the embracing of telehealth as a service delivery model. Um, and I would say probably because of your work, uh, those professions have sort of been a lot sort of further ahead than most of the other professions. I'd like to think so. You know, I mean, 28 years of banging on <laughs> these association doors saying, hey, gang, wake up. There's this whole thing happening over there. And you know those phones you're carrying in your pockets that you do your bank deposits on? (laughs) If you trust them with your bank account, maybe, just maybe there's a way to safely work with people, especially if you don't have to touch them. You know, um, in most most types of therapies, but we see it even in physical therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. um, where... People can work online. Now, granted, in some professions, it's very useful to have an in-person intake. You know, let's say physical therapy. I mean, you do need to have somebody walk you through that. But even at that, if you look at how the world of rheumatoid medicine has worked with telehealth, they have somebody in the room called a telepresenter. 
And so the, the physician working with the telepresenter ahead of time would have the little protocol, you know, the assessment protocol worked out and say, all right, you're in, you know, some Appalachian town. Okay. And I'm in a big city and, you know, I'm going to connect with you there and you're the one's going to be in the room. You're going to have, you know, Mr. Johnson, you know, show up in the room and you're, I'm going to ask you to extend his, his, his hand out away from his shoulder. You know, we want to measure the range of motion on that elbow. Right. And then you measure it. They got one of those little devices got to measure the angles. Right. Well, if they can do that with, you know, rheumatoid medicine, why can't we in our allied fields do that without prescribing meds? but find alternatives using a telepresenter if that in-person session is really absolutely needed, right? After that, follow-up is very easy to do if you leave the door open for people to come back in at your discretion. And I keep telling people this, and I don't see too many people doing it in the larger groups that just jumped in with covid you know, kind of scotch taped themselves together, you know, and now think they're, they've got it all down. If you look at the literature in this field, as I have, well, we've reviewed over 5,000 articles here, you know, kind of have a sense of what's going on. Um, the, there are models, you know, there are tried and true models. And a lot of people have made, frankly, a lot of really bonehead mistakes by guessing. Right? Right. But right. if you bother looking at the literature, which is very easy by going to Google Scholar, Mm-hmm. And typing in a few keywords, include telehealth or telepractice or, you know, telepsychology or whatever it is, telespeech therapy, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, then you see a lot of stuff out there. Right. If you want someone to boil it down for you, then groups like ours at telehealth.org, we boiled it all down and, you know, highlight, organized it according to different principles and different laws and things. But, you know, it's not that hard to do if you want to really learn how do you, how to do follow up the right way. What's been, mm-hmm. what's failed, you know, what's really been proven. And I tell people this all the time, you know, go to an article, look at the sample size. You know, if it's 12 people, don't read that one. Okay. Right. Spare yourself the hassle. But if you've got, you know, decent power in this thing, you've got, you know, 90, 120, 150, 180 folks in there. And especially if you could see that, you know, 16, 16 other articles reference that one. Well, that means it's, it's you know, really past muster. Um, you know, 30 articles, you know, 70 articles reference this one. They kind of are probably saying something that other researchers agree with and they want to, you know, bounce off of that for their article. And you can see all that through Google Scholar, you know. Uh, and then and then you can say, all right, I'm just going to sample sizes, okay. Um, methodology, I kind of skim through that, you know, if you're not, you know, a glutton for punishment, you might just want to go to the discussion section and say, what are they saying I have to do, right? And then document that. They, they suggested five things. I'm doing two with Mr. Johnson. Boom. My stuff is evidence-based, you know. Mm-hmm. If you add mm-hmm. a couple other components, A, for evidence-based, you've got to get research or consensus documents like one of the documents that I came up with, the competencies, you know, for telebehavioral health. I can mention that in a few moments if you like. But uh, then you have to look at the person. No, you have to consider through your licensed brain and all the stuff you know about being licensed. And as a clinician, say, all right, what, what about that article fits this, this person in front of me? Is that all right? So there's two out of five. And the step number three for evidence-based care is you talk to Mr. Johnson. And you say, hey, Mr. Johnson, you know what? I was reading this article and I found that th- th- they suggest these things. And I'm kind of thinking these two things are work for you. Do you want to do it? 
You see, that's called informed consent. And as opposed to static informed consent, when you first sign someone on and they put their name at the end of a paper and probably don't even read that thing, okay, uh, which you're supposed to summarize in beginning of your treatment, but most people don't or don't do it adequately. Um, but then if you do it in an ongoing way like this, you know, someone you know, when you say, hey, I read this article or these five articles or whatever, they suggest these things. Do you want to do it? That's called dynamic informed consent. And you document that. And if anybody ever looks at that, whoa, you are golden. Because now you're standing head and shoulders above most people going out there just doing whatever they, th- they feel like doing and not bothering to read any of this or to substantiate their practice, their professional practice, right, where they should be operating as someone who reads the literature, you see, but most people don't. So that's why, you know, a lot of my training is here's literature and here's, here's how it applies mm-hmm. to you, you know. And then if we have a live training, then, you know, which we do a fair amount at the Institute, then we, we have the audience talk about, okay, so I just said a bunch of stuff. What does that mean to you? You know, how about in your practice? Like, so let's talk, you know, let's discuss this thing. So that's kind of how we approach it, Todd. You know, just how do you, how do, how do we get people to think about evidence-based practice, documenting it, because that's part of a good clinical care is a documentation that you do, you know, and then pra- moving forward from there in collaboration with the client rather than doing it to them. Right. Yeah. 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 So what was it like for you knowing so much about telemedicine, telepractice, and watching everyone try to get on board when the pandemic happened? What mis- what missteps did you see? Where do you see that affecting the field from now on? That's a great question, Kim. So it, it, I was kind of, you know, um, of two minds on that. One, thinking, well, it's about time, you know, that people get it. Look, at last year was 27, let's say 26 years into this. I thought I would die before our, our groups finally got this, which is really sad because telemedicine was accepted in over half of the hospitals a decade ago. So it was it was not rocket science for them to do that, and they're far more complex than a lot of our private practitioners. But the fact is that most of the people in our allied professions are private practitioners, or they're small group, you know, and they're what I like to think of as the last bastion, you know, where they're not going to do it. Um, and, I mean, to be perfectly frank with you, I thought, how interesting. We are the change agents, and yet... We are literally among some of the last professions to change. It's kind of mind-boggling, you know. <laughs> this whole thing about uh, um, physician heal thyself, you know, allied professional. You know, you want to change yourself. Come on, you know, get with the times. Um, I mean, there's nothing that I can think of in my daily routine when I leave the house that isn't automated pumping gas. I go to the grocery. Right. I mean, everything is digitized and automated. And yet many of our people are still doing paper notes. I would estimate half in the behavioral health world, right? And yet there's a fear of change there. You see, I think our populations have a fair amount of anxiety about change. And so we're really great at changing everybody else, but not so much ourselves. So back to the question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. yeah. So 
Oh yeah, I was using carbon copy notes for soap notes, not just like less than there five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so. But you see, we haven't had the leadership that a hospital would, because when the hospital administrator says, "Hey, gang, we're doing this," then everybody has to follow. We're doing but it. when yep. you're in private practice, ah, uh, it's easy. You know, just do what you've been doing, what you learned yeah. in school. You know, twenty, thirty, forty, sometimes fifty, sixty years ago. You know, but. Nowadays, right. I think people, so that's, that's one part of my brain, you know, back to the, you know, the, the binged up two minds. On the other, thinking, do you know what? In 2018, I published an article that showed that a third of the people still thought there was no law or ethical code that controlled this. And our sample was fairly decent size, you know, and so, and it was all psychologists. And so I thought, hmm, what are they doing? And so I went about offering a workshop because I, you know, at that point, everybody was saying, hey, Marlene, you know, you ought to offer some live courses. But I had everything on demand. That was all the basics. So I thought, what could I do that nobody else is in a real position to do? What's the hardest thing to do out there? I said, all right, dealing with advanced clinical issues, people who are a threat to themselves, to other people, uh, people who you've not done a good intake on, you're not set up to know what's going on in their community, you frankly may not even know where they are, or somehow you got hoodwinked into working on one of these online platforms and only doing text messaging, they call it therapy, (laughs) text messaging therapy with somebody you never saw, um, and you can't lay eyes on, uh, you know, then it worries me. Because... I offered 23 of these advanced clinical practice. I mean, now the the last one we recorded and we're selling it on demand, but I would work people up. So it was a a four-hour thing. One first hour was, you know, updates on COVID because that was changing, you know, practically every week. There was a whole bunch of new stuff. So we, you know, would update people on that. And then um, three hours of, look, here's here's the high tops on ethics, informed consent, screening and now so two hours of that and then and now i'm going to drop you into a, a variety of cases and you tell me what you would do and we'd have you know an open dialogue with the audience and we our audience sizes are pretty good 100 200 300 people you know mm-hmm. so there's plenty of opportunity for people to participate and i was terrified at what i saw people writing how they would handle somebody who shows up intoxicated okay somebody who shows up half-dressed you know, somebody who's in a room full of people, somebody who's out, you know, in public somewhere and, and it's just not appropriate in the backseat of a cab or something. You know, what do you say? How do you deal with this? All the way through uh, someone's just enraged with you and screaming profanities, stuff that can happen. I mean, none of this is made up, right? If you've been in practice a while, you kind of know, yep, there's some of that that can happen, right? Uh, all the way through to someone who tells you they've been abusing somebody and now you need to act. Do you know where they are? Do you know who they are? Did you agree to wink, work for an, 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 an anonymous service out there? What were you thinking? You're a mandated reporter, okay? Even teachers are mandated reporters. You don't get off the hook from these obligations mm-hmm. if you decide to mm-hmm. work for an online company that ties your hands behind your back. The minute you you agree, whether you work for somebody for money or not, you do pro bono work for one of these groups, if you don't report, you're in violation of state code. You know, people practicing all over the country, oh, well, HIPAA said I could. Excuse me. 
HIPAA is a privacy law. It has nothing to do with jurisdictional practice, right? <laughs> so people are completely confused right. about what the law, well, well HIPAA's relaxed. No, HIPAA's not relaxed. Enforcement of the security rule in HIPAA was relaxed. It doesn't mean you willy-nilly just go do whatever you please. You see, it's this kind right. of thing where, Kim, you know, getting back to your questions, I'm sitting here horrified of, you folks are professionals. Right. You went to school just like I did, right? Mm -hmm. This doesn't just all go out the window. And and I've just seen so many people doing things that are kind of scary. But what I've also seen now, you know, after we grew, we doubled in size at the Institute. People just came barreling through the door, you know. Um, so a lot of people are, are really good clinicians and they want to get good, solid training and they don't want to deal with the newbie expert who now has been doing this for three months or 13 months, you know, is now a newly coined person. And last year they were on the, lat, the you know, the whatever the the big sale was then, whatever the newest, hottest topic was. But they really want to work with somebody who's been doing it for a long time, has looked at a lot of ins and outs on this, and can kind of give them the straight and narrow on it, you know. Here, try this, as opposed to, well, you know, you may want to do this or do that or do this or do that. Mealy mouth trainers really don't help me. <laughs> and I don't think they help clinicians. Granted, it's a clinician's prerogative to do a variety of things. But there are certain things, like if you want to practice over state lines, there's no mealy mouthness that'll fly there. Okay? And I tell people, don't right. trust anybody. A, in some cases like this, don't necessarily trust an attorney because what do attorneys do for a living? They argue with other attorneys. <laughs> okay? Right. So, who, they're not the gold standard, okay? If you have a question about your in a jurisdictional practice, don't ask me, right? Don't ask any, don't ask the associations. You go to your licensing board. They're the mm -hmm. ones that give you that right or don't, you see? That's Anybody right. else yeah. is an intermediary. Don't don't ask it in a Facebook exactly, group. Exactly, in a Facebook right. group, you know, or in a comment box <laughs> on a blog or something. Right. I mean, if you ask for opinions, that's exactly what you're going to get. But if you want, the law, exactly. you've got to go to the state board. And most importantly, right now, that's critical because state boards are changing right and left. You see, they completely do 180 on what they, they did two years ago. Right. Two years ago, you could not treat a, a Floridian if your feet, you cannot go into Florida if your feet were in any other state. Okay. Also, even if that person was just driving through Louisiana and they called you from a hotel room in, in Louisiana, you couldn't do it. Now, Florida's completely reversed that and said, anybody, come on in anytime. This is as of two, three years ago. Come on in anytime. You just have to fill out a form with, you know, like a local representative here. You see, right. so the boards are growing and they're learning and they're changing and they need to. Okay. But anybody who trusts this, you know, anybody else is really not not thinking it through, and they need to get that state opinion in writing. Because I can't tell you how many people mm -hmm. call me and say, "Well, I called my board and they told me ABC," and now, you know, they're saying EFG. Did you get it in writing? No. Well, there's your mistake. Okay. 
You send them yeah. an email. It's got a time and a date stamp on that, and it can be traced through servers if you need it. Okay, so right? there's your evidence. You don't have to wait for the snail mail because you know that a lot of that got shut down. That is starting to come back, but still, some of these agencies are very bogged down. Email is the way to go. Well, Marley, you know, with COVID, we've seen so much in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of the changes. Where do you think we're going to end up with with a lot of this? Do you think we're going to end up, uh, obviously, with maybe more telehealth than we had before, with somewhat of the pendulum swinging back to more in-person services? Do you think that some of these states are going to be, you know, pulling back some of these uh, less restrictive uh, kinds of things and, and putting back in place the more restrictive uh, kinds of policies that uh, affect telehealth and telepractice. What do you think we're going to, where are we going to end up, you think? Well, I think we need to to look at it from a bottoms-up approach, if we want to look at that, okay? The consumer demand drives this country. Mm-hmm. If you If you look at what Amazon has done, Amazon um, books originally, right, mm-hmm. has done based on consumer demand alone. It, it replaced the Barnes and Noble store. That was the corner of <laughs> where I live on the corner, you know, and a lot of these other things were a lot of, oh, I love going to my bookstore. I love having a cup of coffee, you know, uh, and, and just you know, going through the stacks. Yeah, well, good for you. <laughs> okay. That's not how most people buy books. And so, a lot of people right now have had the convenience of having to see their physician immediately. They wait in their house, physician pops in somewhat around the scheduled time, and that patient doesn't have to sit in a sneezy, drippy waiting room for literally an average of an hour per visit across this country, which means sometimes it's two hours, sometimes it's three hours. Oh, the doctor has an emergency. What about me? Okay. Why didn't you call me? Why didn't you call me to tell me the doctor's three, four hours behind? Never happened. Right? We don't we don't count. Okay. So now they've had the experience of this like why? I don't I'm just doing a straight follow up. The doc never even if the doctor palpates my stomach, I'm lucky. All right. I may need right. to ask for it even. You would just touch me, right? You know, like just in and out and, and I get an average of 10 minutes. Well, geez, if you're going to give me 10 minutes, do it at my convenience, you know, text me, ring my call me or do something so it pops up on my phone and sure, I'll hit the button. I'll be happy to talk with you, okay? Once the consumer has this taste in their mouth, they're going to drive this thing, Todd, okay? And they're already driving it because they're the ones pummeling their 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 governors' offices and the, and the legislators saying we want telehealth, we and we need more of that. We need these consumers to feel more and more empowered because yes, there will be a pendulum that swings back. Obviously, I mean that's already happened, but I think it's going to swing back toward more telehealth. Even once patients are sitting in these waiting rooms with their two three kids that have to you know have, they have to bring a sitter to sit with them or something, you know, pay all that. All the inconveniences and, frankly, the absurdity of having to go to a doctor's office when you're sick, you know, for something that's routine or for psychotherapy or speech therapy, you know, so many things, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Mrs. Smith, let me see how you're holding that cup this week. Okay, hold it up to the camera. Well, you know, you need to put your thumb a little bit higher, ma'am. You see that right there? Move your, There you go. That's a better position. A lot of this stuff can be done through cameras. 
So why inconvenience Mrs. Smith if she's got ambulatory problems? Okay, or she can't get a ride. She's got to pay for an Uber. She doesn't like that those young people in those cars and how they drive. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of inconveniences. Why not let people be where they're at? It's safer. They're not going to catch whatever else is floating around in the community. You know, in terms of diseases, it's more sanitary. You know, it's it's more respectful in terms of time. So that's the consumer part. And people are clamoring. There literally, Todd, are a thousand bills at the federal and state levels as we speak right now to change things. What needs to happen is not only consumers need to write, but our clinicians need to take 15 minutes out of their busy day one time and send the same letter to everybody. Send the letter to their their elected officials, all of them, all right? And send that same letter to their malpractice carrier and send the same letter to their licensing board and send the same letter to their state and national associations and say, you know what? I have experienced the benefits of this and I would like to register my vote for you to take it on yourself to make this happen in a way that's reasonable from your perspective. I can't see what you see, okay? I'm just a clinician sitting here on my end. But what I can see is this is a whole lot better for a lot of what we do. You know, not all, but for a lot of what we do. And as a tip to that clinician, you know, who's thinking, oh, no, no, there are some people who can't, this won't work for, if you dole out your telepractice sessions as a gift to somebody, as opposed to I'm only going to do telepractice, which is a commitment to them that you're going to show up that way. You're going to be, you're going to feel better about it. And I'll tell you why. If let's say I, I see the two of you, you come in, you know, say your brother or sister, you come into me, you want family therapy. Okay. And you look kind of normal. You kind of look, you know, within parameters of doing telepractice because there's a whole screening side on this. Right. But okay. You look like you're going to show up. You're responsible, you know, um, all right, I sign you up. It behooves me to say to you, let's try three sessions or five sessions or 10, you know, whatever I as a clinician, given the problem at hand, you know, feel appropriate. And we'll see how it goes. You see, that's a gift. I'm giving you a gift of three sessions. Well, when it gets to be the third session, I can say, you know what? I would want to check in with you. How is this going for you? Is this working out? Do you have any reservations? Do you feel like you want to come back in? If you both say, no, this is good. This works really great. Then I was, I could say, well, let's try another three or five or 10, whatever. You see, I can dole it out in segments so that at any point, if I feel like it's not working, I am not overcommitted there. And I can say, you know what? I, I kind of thought you'd say that, but you know, I've got some reservations. How about you come back in for one session and let me just talk to you in my office. There's a few things I'd like to just sit in person and talk with you about. See, at that point, they're not expecting full-on telehealth. Folks are expecting they're going to, they get a little bit to run with and they better cooperate or you know what, I'm going to pull this back, okay? If, you see, if you, can, if you can be judicious about this mm-hmm. and not go, it's not all or nothing, I'm going to run with you this way and we'll see how you do. Okay. And then, you know, I'll give you, ask you your opinion first and I'll weigh in with mine. And if I feel like you need to come in for a session, all right, I want you to come in. And if they say, I don't want to say, well, I'm sorry, 
this is this is how I need to work. You see, so use your leverage right. there. And if they want to blow out of therapy and, and you think that they they really are not a good choice, you know, people keep doing weird things there on camera. They're, you're kind of the, the hair in the back of your neck is starting to stand up. Go, wait, wait, wait. Don't do it. Because literally, you're responsible for whatever happens on the other end. You can't say, oh, well, my client decided to drive around in their car and talk to me. And that's why they had that auto accident and killed a family. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Not their fault, your fault. You shouldn't have let that happen. Yeah. You saw, as soon as you saw something moving, boom, stop. I'm sorry, can't work with you. You're driving. You see, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think, too, thinking if, if you're not the one that's able to provide, uh, like I'm telehealth or telepractice only with my practice. And, I'm, I, you know, I don't feel like this is appropriate for you. Here's some people in your area that could do that, too, giving them that option. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, it depends on exactly what you do, but you can have people go and see their primary care doc. You know, I'm going to need you to go talk to your primary care. I'll, you know, I'll, you know, happy to coordinate. If you've got a primary care physician there, that'll work with you. You know, sometimes they don't want to work with us or they're not too communicative with us, you know, in the in us peripheral world, you see. But, but occasionally they're really good ones. There's a psychiatrist, you know, in, in my field, right? There's, there are people mm-hmm. who are very amenable to helping and to co- collaboration with us. And others simply aren't, you right. see. But using that extended network, uh, using a telepresenter, as I mentioned early on, there may be somebody who needs to be in the room with them, that they need to go to a clinic, you know, where there is a telepresenter that you've trained. That's the classic telehealth model. And when people study that classic model, they can see there's so many things that were done in the original models of telehealth, which is a lot of what we teach at the Institute, you know. Um, that you can extrapolate out from that and say, eh, this is reasonable. No, this other thing. No, 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 no. There's absolutely zero precedence for that. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like people forget that the part where telepractice could help you connect to other professionals, not just the patients themselves, that you can, you know, work in conjunction with other professionals instead of it being all in person or all online. Yeah, and you know, if you think about it, it depends on how you're set up, right? But right now we're in a Zoom room. We could record this. We could hit the record button at any time. And let's say you're doing speech and language therapy, Mm -hmm. just as an example, or physical therapy, Mrs. Smith with her thumb on the cup. You could record that session. You know what? I just want to record for the next, I'm going to ask you a few questions. I'm going to record this for five minutes. If you do this in a HIPAA-compliant way, you can send that off to the referring source and say, this is what I see. You know, it could be a progress report. You know, you could record a piece of your initial assessment, right, and keep that as a baseline. Whether you send it into that person, the referral source or not, you could keep it. And then you could do, you know, a two-month, three-month, six-month follow-up and say, all right, this is what I see now. You see, and if there's something problematic, you could show that clip. It could be a two-minute, a five-minute, you know, very short even, a little clip to the referral source and say, look, this is what I saw initially. This is where we're at now. We're kind of stuck. <laughs> you know, what do you, what do you think? Can, you, you know, what, can we collaborate on this? Can we work together? And sending that in a HIPAA-compliant way is not rocket science. 
Right. You know, they, you need you need to send it up to the cloud. You know, and there are lots of HIPAA compliant cloud resources. We have some at our institute. Telehealth. No, it's uh, it's guide.telehealth.org. Uh, we it's a resource guide that we're just developing now. We're inviting people to come in and rate review technology they've already used to help their colleagues know what they what they've liked or not liked about a platform. But there are lots of cloud recording companies out there. You know, you could buy a you know very inexpensive cloud HIPAA compliant cloud storage, and then you send the practitioner the link. Here's the before and after on the on what I'm seeing, you know, or whatever kind of report you want to do. So there's lots of ways to get this done in a way that's very respectful of everybody and more collegiality, Kim. Yep. And in a way, it's even better than ever, right? I mean, if, if you did right. this five years ago and you saw something, there really was no mechanism to record that and show anybody else. You know, if it's a child and you're dealing with a teacher, you know, there's all kinds of collaboration that can happen now that couldn't before. So it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Arlene, we want to be very respectful of your time. And so we wanted to get to a part of the show where we ask you some additional questions, a little bit more on a personal side, just okay. to get to know you. Okay. Okay. We call it our moment of zen. So... Here goes. You ready? Did you say Zen or Zen? Zen. Z-E-N. Okay, mm-hmm. Zen. Okay, I'm ready. What's the most used app on your on your phone? My personal phone. Mm-hmm. Calm. C-A-L-M. Ooh. It's a good one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've I've gotten into more of that lately. <laughs> what was the last uh, TV series you streamed? Um Right now, I'm watching something called The Great on Hulu. Mm-hmm. About Catherine, why? Catherine, Catherine the Great. Catherine mm-hmm. the Great. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's got gumption. I love women with a backbone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, it's kind of funny. You know, I mean, that's it's not it's fictionalized, you know, right. but um, it's, it's pretty funny. So I like that. Yeah, it's, it's gotten great reviews. Uh-huh. Uh, what's, a, what's a favorite book of yours? Um. You know, I'm so steeped in acad- academic books. I don't take I don't take time to read. The first thing that pops in my mind is The Little Prince. Oh, good. <laughs> when I was a child, I loved that one. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Who would you like to have dinner with, dead or alive? President Lincoln. Ooh, he is one of my heroes. Uh, what a man! Oh, yeah. And and I was I was so impressed by. The documentary, no, it was sort of like, it was a fictionalized, but, you know, more or less documentary on his life that came out a few years back. And I thought, wow, that guy, no tech. He just had to send emissaries out to do his work. And it could take weeks, months for someone to get back. But that guy had a backbone. Courage. courage. You see, that's what I respect is courage. Yeah. Very true. I just I just saw a documentary not too long ago about the a photograph they thought was the last photograph of Lincoln. Ah. Um, and so they brought in someone to ch- chase the, to trace the providence of the photograph. And they, long story short, do you want me to tell you the the outcome? Yes, please. So, <laughs> with the photograph that was taken, uh, was a 
is a man on his deathbed. And it turns out that the house that they brought uh, Lincoln after he was shot, um, they brought him into uh, this sort of boarding house. And he was in the, on the downstairs bedroom. And the upstairs was uh, housed a photography studio with two brothers. And they basically put it together that uh, in between changing of guards and everything else, they came down and took a photograph of Lincoln in his deathbed. Wow. And pretty intense. Pretty intense. <laughs> and, uh, and that photograph has now been, you know, deemed to be authentic uh, of, of him. And, and apparently one of the traditions back then was you would prop people, deceased relatives up and take pictures of them as if they were living. And so they propped him up as if he was still with us. I'm looking at it now. Oh, yeah. See there? See? It's it's a very eerie photograph. Very Very eerie. Interesting. Yeah. That's it. Wow. And so they just... uh, <clears throat> Just watch that documentary. It's very interesting. So check out. I mean, I still think the the, the documentary is worth 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 um, watching. So uh, another question: If you could create one law or behavior that everyone had to follow, what would it be? Well, being where I'm at in the telehealth world, it would be that people get sufficient training to be able to call themselves professional at telehealth, because I don't see that happening in great numbers. Um, whether they get the training from our institute or someplace else, that's credible, you know, that they make sure they're proficient. And that I chaired a committee that came up with competencies for the field at the urging of the one of the past presidents of the American Counseling Association who grabbed me by the ear and said, Marlene, and this was in 2012, I think, <laughs> you need to write the competencies for this field. And I said, what? Competencies? I don't want to write any stinking competencies. I'm kidding. I got, <laughs> right. I got lots to do already. She said, no, 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 no. You're in the best position to do this and the field needs it and you got to do it and I'll help you. Her name was Donna Ford and she helped me. And so we got together, the group took us four and a half years. It was a monster program. Um, nobody paid us. We, it was all pro bono, you know, and uh, we ended up with a publication in 2017 for the Journal for Technology and Behavioral Science, which is a journal I founded. And uh, Springer Health is, is the publisher, second largest in mental health in the world. And um, they didn't put the competencies in the competency article. I could have brained them. <laughs> so <laughs> then we published it again in 2018. And that's when we, that's the one we use as a competency table at the back. And so that identified 146 competencies that people need to be paying attention to. And a lot of those do have crossover to you know, speech and language, you know, what we're talking about today, occupational, physical therapy, because a lot of it has to do with legal and ethical issues. You know, there's only one part on clinical. So, yeah, it would be that people take that word professional seriously and think about their practices from the perspective of what would your licensing board say? 
you know, what would your senior professors say about what you're doing here? Right. You know, if you, if you can't document that you're doing the right way, then yeah, yikes, you better think about it again and get some training. Exactly. Good, good answer. Um, what's the most exotic place you've ever been or the farthest place you've ever been? Geographically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that makes it less interesting, but okay. Or, 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 or any <laughs> other realm that you want to. <laughs> we, we, we won't go there, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Geographically. I think it was probably Europe when I was 16. I um, did one of those, you know, high school study things where we were gone for five weeks and we went to Spain, mostly Spain, and we would visit these old, 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 old churches that had these these huge petty points that were like, I don't know, I mean, I was younger, but it just, it was like walls of them. They had hung up in racks and, you know, how when, when you go to... Um, um, Disney World or something, you know, you've got these rows and rows, you know, kind of snake around, you know, well, rather than having these blue cords or red cords or something, there was these huge walls of these petty point things. And it was, you, know, you couldn't touch it. It was far enough away from your hands. You couldn't touch it or anything, but it was these massive scenes of um, um, countrysides and battles, you know, wars and things. Um, so that was in the churches. And then also going to the the museums were these paintings by Goya. It's kind of the oh, same yeah. thing, you know, where it's like a thousand little strokes for all the people in the war scene, you know, all the soldiers and things. I was just, I was just amazed, you know, at, of right. what the, the historical nature of all of this for all these centuries ago. So, yeah, it's kind of the most far out, you know, deep in the bowels of these churches and all. That's a real that's different a, world. Yep. That's a cool trip. Um, what's the scariest thing you've ever done? And you can define scary in any way you want. I remember being at um, board of directors meeting for the American Psychological Association and um, being dismissed in many ways for my concerns about telehealth or even bringing up telehealth. And... Um, I remember I thought, you know what, I could sit here and just listen to all this stuff that other people apparently thought was so critical that I had to be there, uh, you know, and I could just listen to it or I can open my mouth up. And I remember um, raising my hand and, and taking the floor and saying, you know, I, I'm confused. Uh, there are so many negative attitudes about telehealth and all the ramifications of all the reasons we shouldn't change. I don't understand. Aren't we all under the ethics code? As long as someone is practicing ethically, which of course builds on legally, first tenet of any ethics code is you follow all the applicable laws, right? So as long as we're practicing ethically and legally, what's the problem, you know? Mm -hmm. Can somebody articulate the problem, right? Right. So that was scary for me to do. I, I bet, yes. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I was right up in their face. And um, that's been my position for decades now. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of being the renegade out there saying, 
you know, there's no reason not to do this. Right. Yeah. Right. What's a what's a favorite? Oh, excuse me. What is a pet peeve? Competitors. Competitors. Yeah, I did my dissertation on competition versus collaboration. Mm. You know, trying to understand, and it was for smoking cessation, you know, and mm-hmm. obviously collaboration, you know, those groups did better than the competition was. But um, I don't understand why people can't work together. You know, especially if you look at the behavioral world, Todd. Right. The, the, the professions don't work with each other. There are these little silos. Everybody has their own body of literature. They do not rely on each other's knowledge, all right? Yet, and they won't adopt each other's guidance or, you know, white papers or whatever position. No, 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 no. They got to start from scratch and do it on their own because they're also special. Well, you know what? When you get to, to the internet and you get to technology and nobody's also special, we're all trying to do the same thing. And I tell people, tell the helps about being the truck, how you get from one place to another. It's not about the content. It's not about whether you do speech and language or if you do occupational or physical or, or uh, nursing or whatever. You, that's the content. You put that in the truck. But how you go from A to B, how you go from your in-person practice to that patient out there who really needs you, okay, that's telehealth. And so there's nothing special about it if you open your mind. But a lot of people, including a lot of people at the university level who teach, you know, their minds are closed. And it's, you've got to prove to me, you know, all kinds of, these constant calls for more research. Hello, telehealth has been researched more than a number of leading theories across all these fields. Because it's been, it was funded by the federal government in 1959 was the first telepsychiatry visit. That's a lot of years of research. We've documented over 5,000 articles at the Institute, you see? And yet, how much research do you want? You see, that there are ways. How about if you bother reading the research, (laughs) then talk to me? (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. Um, If you didn't choose your current profession, what profession would you like to try? I would have been a lawyer. I can see tell. The reason, <laughs> the reason <laughs> we can see that, but not because I like lawyers. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean I have met some wonderful ones, and they've taught me a lot. Um, you know, I actually have written with some for decades, but uh, I always try to have a lawyer on my team as a presentation panel. But um, my mind works that way, you see. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I went into mental health because when I was in grad school, my roommate was a law student. And we would go to dinner with my friends and, you know, and my friends create openings. You know, so, you know, what are you doing these days? You know, you, you pull people out. When I went to, to dinner with her friends, it was like having dinner with piranha. You know, they, they, nobody would create an opening for anybody else. Nobody asked. They were constantly trying to one-up each other and best each other. Like, ew, what an obnoxious group of people. I didn't want to hang out with them. You know, I said, no, I think I'll stick with what I do. You go be the lawyer. <laughs> but, but If you could practice law without, without being, being a lawyer. lawyer without associating with other lawyers, you know, or the obnoxious element. But the truth is, in my mind, lawyers are pit bulls, you know. I mean, you point them in the direction and they go, do the job. You see, they go bite for you. Well, that's fine if, if that personality does that, but I really don't want to be in that, you know, I'm more of a cause, you know, sort of um, earthy, crunchy, you know, soft, cushy type person, you know, except when you cross me, in which case then my back does go up and I can articulate it with the best of them. <laughs> sure, sure. Yes. 
Well, the, the final question for you, uh, and this is all based on the sort of loosely based on the Proust questionnaire, but this is the only question that Proust actually had in his. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I would like God to say, Marlene, you've helped a lot of people help other people. And so your impact in this world has been positive. You've left it a better place than you entered it. That is off. Awesome. Good. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good one. Yes. Ripple effect. Well, Marlene, telehealth.org is where people can find you and all the wonderful resources that you guys offer. Uh, is there other contact information you'd like to share, or is that the best way to get in contact? Well, telehealth.org is the best place to go. If people want to email us, it's contact at telehealth.org. So, to us there. And I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Good. It's been great having you you on and best of luck with everything that you're doing. I appreciate that. Take care. Same to you. Okay. Bye. Bye, Bye. Todd. Bye, Kim. That was Marlene Mayhew from telehealth.org. If you haven't had a chance to check out all of the content and materials and trainings that they offer, please go do that. Uh, If you are new to telehealth or if you are a seasoned pro, I'm sure there's material and content there that you need to access. So thank you again, Marlene, for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for listening to this episode of Telepractice Today. If you don't mind, rate, review, subscribe, and follow the podcast. Leave us a five-star review. That always helps us attract new subscribers. We will be back again next week. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.